Good morning, church. It's good to see you all. Please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 16. We're in the Gospel of Matthew again. Matthew chapter 16. And as a preacher and pastor, uh, there are certain passages that you look forward to preaching more than others for various reasons. This is one I'm very excited to preach about. Uh, today we are looking at what is the key turning point in gospel or Matthew's gospel. In his commentary, Grant... Oh, ugh, I can't speak this morning. First service just wore me out. Grant Osborne, there we go. Commentator Grant Osborne observed the following. The entire narrative thus far has prepared for this climactic moment. So everything we've studied in Matthew's Gospel up to this point has prepared us for this moment, for this climactic passage. So our sermon title is Christ and His Church. Christ and His Church. I invite you to follow along as I read God's Word. We're going to read Matthew 16, verses 13 down through 21. This is what Holy Scripture says. Now... When Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. This is the word of God and it is eternally true. I invite you to join me in prayer now. Father, we come before you in your word knowing, as we've already sung this morning, your desire is to bless your people today. If even earthly fathers know how to give good gifts to their children, how much more will our Father in Heaven give good gifts to His? So we ask you, Father, now for the good gift of seeing Jesus Christ in your Word. Open our eyes that we may see. Open our ears that we may hear. Open our hearts that we might receive. God, we want to behold wondrous things in your word today. So we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
This last February, I was shopping uh, in a grocery store, and while I was in line, I noticed the cover of Time magazine featured a painting of Jesus uh, with his name across the top, and then this question in bold, who do you say that I am? Taken right out of our text here today. Uh, the line in the grocery store was a rather long and slow-moving line, and so I had time to peruse the article while I waited. And the stories in it surveyed Jesus' life and contemplated his teachings and examined his ministry. And all throughout there were these interviews with scholars and theologians and religious figures asking them, who do you say that Jesus is? And this really is the most important question that anyone in this world has to consider. Who do you say that Jesus is? It's the most important question, and it's really been the key question all along throughout Matthew's gospel. People in the crowds wondering, who is this man? People in positions of great authority asking the question and sometimes speculating about who he might be. People are wondering. People are inquiring. This has been the key question all along in Matthew's gospel. Who is Jesus? It's the key question of our text, and it's still a relevant and the most important question in our day. Who is he? So, we want to begin this morning working our way through this text by answering that question. We're going to answer two questions as we work through our study today, but the first one is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Well, Matthew begins in verse 13, telling us where Jesus has taken his disciples. They have gone to the district of Caesarea Philippi. If you were to look on a map, this is about 25 miles north of where they have been. So if you're following along the last few weeks, this is further up into Gentile territory. And the really interesting thing to know about this, because um, I know most of you are not taking out your maps and trying to figure out where Caesarea Philippi is, but the really interesting thing to know about this is Jesus has actually taken his disciples to the northern border of the historic promised land. So it's Gentile territory now in Jesus' day, but it was originally territory given by God to his people. So this is where uh, the promised land meets the rest of the world. This is where Israel meets paganism. This is where the world of the Jew meets the world of the Gentile. This is the, the nexus of humanity as the Bible views it, the Jew and the Gentile. Now, this is where the Jew and the rest of the world come together, and it's right on the cusp of the promised land, right on its boundary to the rest of the world, laying open before Jesus, that he gathers his disciples around, and he says, Who do people say that I am? And the disciples answer, giving him the, the popular opinions of the day. They're all distorted views of Jesus and distorted views of Scripture. Some say he was John the Baptist, back from the dead. Others say he was Elijah. Some thought he was Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. The, the people, the crowds, had a distorted view of who Jesus truly was. Uh, basically, some thought he was a great man. Other than he was a moral teacher. Maybe even a prophet. But what wasn't hitting the polls was he was a savior. And if you read through Acts and the New Testament letters, this is what the church continued to wrestle with all through its beginning. Distorted views of Jesus. 
In fact, if you want to, to get a heavy dose of it, 1 John is an excellent epistle. Uh, besides encouraging what true faith looks like, John is continually battling distorted views of Jesus. Distorted views of Jesus was already what they were confronting. And this is why the Bible has some of the ancient creeds, and there were ancient creeds developed outside of the Bible as well, because we needed to protect the nature and identity of Jesus. It was so crucial. We find one of them in 1 Timothy 3.16. Paul writes, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He, being Jesus, was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Confessions of who Jesus is because the natural man has a distorted view of Jesus. Now, here's something that you need to understand. I think it's something that's helpful for us to understand. We know the great enemy of Christ, the great enemy of the church, is Satan. And Satan does not usually avoid the Bible in his attacks. Satan does not usually avoid Scripture. What Satan likes to do is hijack it. He distorts the teaching of Scripture. And one place you can see this more clearly than maybe any other is Jesus' attack, or I mean Satan's attack, his temptation of Jesus in the wilderness back in Matthew chapter 4. Remember how he approached Jesus. It was similar to how he approached Eve, but he said to Jesus, if, if you are the Son of God. Let me just sow some doubt in there. If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. And then the second temptation, he persists. If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down. And then he quotes scripture. For it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. So what was all this? It was an attack on the nature of Jesus, if you are the Son of God. And it was a distortion of scripture. It is written concerning the angels. So go ahead and do this. It's an attack on the nature of Jesus. It's a distortion of Scripture. And so when you have someone knock on your door, and it's a Jehovah's Witness, and they are telling you that Jesus is a little God, a a God with a little G, and they try to show you a slew of Bible verses to prove their point, or when Mormons tell you that Jesus is one of many gods and Lucifer is his brother and they show you their verses from scripture alongside the book of Mormon. I want you to understand what the source of this is. It is as old as Satan's temptation of Jesus. It is attack on the nature of Jesus through a distortion of scripture. This is one of Satan's tactics. And we see this in popular belief of Jesus today. Today, uh, if one believes in Jesus, it's popular to believe that Jesus exists to make you healthy and wealthy. Or to believe a Jesus who exists to promote the champion in you. To endorse and promote your greatness. There are those who believe in Jesus the life coach. Or Jesus the moral teacher. Or Jesus the accept everyone as they are. But none of these are the Jesus of the Bible. They are the natural man trying to make sense of Jesus. They are natural, but they are not innocent. And if any of these are your view of Jesus, then the most loving thing I can do 
for you, the most loving thing I can tell you is that you do not believe in the Jesus of the Bible. And you may confess to be a Christian, but you are not a Christian. You may think you are going to heaven, but you do not believe in the true Christ. And so your sin is still taking you to hell. What has happened is you have believed in what the Bible calls a doctrine of the demons. Surely you didn't mean to do that, but you have been fooled by Satan. We see warning of this in 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Paul writes, In later times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Understand, no one looks at a deceitful spirit and says, Ah, you're a deceitful spirit. I want to devote myself to you. What happens is there is a spirit who deceives so that the one deceived believes that they believe the right thing. But actually they've been fooled by Satan. 2 Corinthians 11 verse 3 says, But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. We have an enemy who is cunning and is out to lead you astray through deceit. The most important question the world has to answer is, who is Jesus? And the Bible teaches that there is only one right answer, only one true answer, only one saving answer, and it's the answer Peter gives, verses 15 through 17 in our text. Jesus said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Savior. He is the Son of the living God. True God from true God, as the Nicene Creed says. And the question is, do you believe this? It doesn't matter if you grew up in a Christian home. It doesn't matter if you go to church. It doesn't matter if you were baptized as a child or made some decision at camp when you were a kid. None of that makes you a Christian. The only thing that matters is what you believe about Jesus today. Is he your savior? Do you need him? Do you confess? Otherwise, your sin would drag you to hell, would damn you to hell would plunge you to hell. Is Jesus your Savior? And do you believe that He is Son of the living God? Lord of your life. What do you say about Jesus? I was talking with my one of my littler kids earlier this week, and he was professing faith in Christ. And I said, buddy, that is great. I'm so awesome. I'm so glad that you believe in Jesus. But listen, if you believe He is Christ, then you believe He is God. And if he is God, then you want to obey him. Do you want to obey him? Do you want to obey him? Because the only right answer is he is the Christ and the Son of the living God. We've heard a lot about deconstruction 
in the last number of years. I'm sure you've heard about that. Deconstructing. People deconstructing from their faith. Usually it's it's some famous person in the, the Christian world. Usually they're a part of the evangelical circle, uh, our circle. And, and, and now they're leaving the faith. They're deconstructing. Yes, I used to be an evangelical Christian. Uh, I used to believe those things. But now I'm happier because I'm free. I'm post-Christian or I'm ex-evangelical. And if you've been around long enough with us in Sovereign Grace Churches, we've seen this in our own denomination. Right? Uh, Joshua and Shannon Harris. Uh, he was a very popular pastor, a popular author. And, uh, and now they're divorced and both of them denounce Christ. How does that happen? How does that happen? It's very confusing. Uh, Shannon Harris, who I just mentioned, she just published a book. Just published a book. Don't read it. I read an interview about, and I just, it's so sad, but she says that she, in the book, is celebrating her freedom from the confines of marriage and church so that she now can embrace her whole self. She, when asked to describe her faith now, she says, I would describe myself as secular. Celebrating the freedom from the confines of marriage and church so that she can embrace her whole self. And if I could, I would want to ask Shannon, yes, but what does it profit a man to gain the whole world but lose his soul? The Bible has a a word for those who abandon the faith. It's a hard word, but it's one we should know. The word is apostate, one who abandons or leaves the faith. And the Bible says that they leave us the way that they do because they were, in fact, never of us. A very helpful verse is 1 John 2, verse 19. 1 John 2, 19, John writes, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, and I want you to notice this part, but they went out that it might become plain. What they are that they are all that they are that they all there it is are not of us. So a deconstruction as a post-Christian ex-evangelical, what you're seeing there, cutting through all the fog and confusion about what you're seeing there is a revelation. Being coming plain that they are not of us. How does deconstruction happen? It happens because people are confessing something they don't believe. Their confession is sound, but they are not sound. The words are right, but they are not right. They know the truth, but they don't believe the truth. Friends, never forget, when Jesus asked the question in our passage, but who do you say that I am? Never forget there was a Judas among them. Handpicked by Jesus and discipled by Jesus. He was identified with them and he was trusted by them, treasurer of the disciples. Listen, at the Last Supper when Jesus said, I tell you, one of you will betray me, it's not like all the eyes went to Judas. They had no idea, they had no clue. 
In fact, some of them are humble enough to say, it's not me, is it, Lord? It's not me, is it? So again, I want to ask you, everyone in this room, who do you say Jesus is? This is the most important question you will ever have to answer. I heard someone say that they were a Christian talking about reading their Bible. They said, I'm cramming for the final. And I said, there's only one question on that final, and the answer is right here. Who do you say Jesus is? Not your pastor, not your parents, not your friends, not your upbringing. Who do you say that he is? The only answer that delivers the soul is you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That Jesus is the Savior, he is the Deliverer, he is the King of Kings. That everything in the Old Testament that prepared the people of God to recognize the Messiah, Jesus is him. That is the only answer that saves and it is the only confession of the Church of Jesus Christ. That's question and answer, number one. Question number two, then, this morning, we want to wrestle with, is what is the church? What is the church? You may have noticed when I read it, the word church comes up. It's the first time the church word church appears in the New Testament. It's the first time the word church appears in Matthew. It's going to appear one other, or no, two other times, both of them in one passage in Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 16 here and Matthew 18 are two of the most important passages in your Bible about the church. And it's interesting, these are some of the most debated verses in the Bible. And so we've got a lot to work through. I'm going to help us work through this, you know, thinking about what is the church. I want us to look through this by looking at five glorious truths about the church that we see here. So we're going to break this down into five glorious truths about the church that we see here. And the first one we're going to see is the owner of the church. The owner of the church. Verse 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. And on this rock, I will build my church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The first thing I want you to notice here is that the church belongs to Jesus. It does not belong to your pastors. It does not belong to you. It belongs to Jesus Christ. He says, I will build my church. And I hope you can see in this something of how much Jesus cares for his church. It should strike us that as soon as he is identi- his identity is so clearly stated... He breaks out in rejoicing and then begins to talk immediately about his church. The church. You get who I am, now get what I'm all about. You get who I am, now get who my people are. He calls it my church. We are his church. Ephesians 5 and Revelation says that we are the bride of Christ. Acts 20, in Acts 20, Paul refers to the church as that which was obtained by the very blood of Jesus Christ. We are blood-bought. Friends, the church is very dear to, to Jesus. It is his church. And here's the touch point for us. If you love Jesus, the church will be very dear to you. If you love Jesus, the church will be very dear to you. No sermon these days, uh, at least in the recent streak I've been, would be complete without a Spurgeon quote, so I have one of my favorite Spurgeon quotes for you. He exhorts, give yourself to the church. 
You that are members of the church have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had never joined a church till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth. All who have first given themselves to the Lord should as speedily as possible also give themselves to the Lord's people. Friends, it's very simple theology here. If Christ is the center of your life, if you love Jesus, then you will love what Jesus loves. If you love Jesus, you will love what Jesus loves. And you will lay your life down for what Jesus has laid his life down for. The church is his precious bride. And imperfect as it is, as Mr. Spurgeon observes, the more you commit yourself to it, the more it really does become the dearest place on earth. And I want to commend you all, as as Bert testified, so many of you are in community groups, involved, engaged. I commend you for making the church of Christ a priority in your life. And uh, I just want to commend William and Abigail, who have, this is their last Sunday with us, and so this is their send-off, and what a great sermon to preach for a send-off, the Christ and His church. Um, for those of you who don't know William and Abigail, uh, they have been here while uh, William was, was clerking for a judge nearby, and uh, have travailed, you know, gone through many trials as they have, but they came here and threw themselves into the life of this church, knowing that they'd only be here for a year. But they gave themselves to Christ and His bride. And so, well done. We commend you guys for that. Thank you for your example. We're going to miss you. We're praying for your blessings. And we are praying that that means you'll be back. Um, And sorry about your career if that ruins it, but... (laughs) take comfort in knowing that Jesus reprays our prayers correctly, and so it's all going to turn out for good in the end, uh, but we do love you guys, and we are grateful for you. Yeah, you're welcome. I do want to commend them and many of you for the way that you do serve the church, and, uh, and yet, for some of you, I think the application, the pressing home is, um, do you love with your lips while your heart is far from it? Is Christ and his church something you confess, you profess as a priority, but in your heart, in practice, it does not hold a central place? If so, there's a call to application for you here. And it's really a call of conviction. This moves us into the second glorious truth we want to look at here. The second glorious truth is the rock of the church. The rock of the church. Jesus owns the church and promises to build it. Verse 18 again. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. Now, if you know anything about church history, you might know that this is one of the most controversial and debated verses in all your Bible. Everyone wants to know what the rock is that Jesus builds his church upon. Is it Peter... Or is it his confession? And I would say, the answer is, yes. So what's the fuss? Why is everybody arguing? 
Well, let me walk it through briefly with you. The name Peter, the name Peter, Jesus renames him, right? His name is Simon. Jesus gives him a new name. You are Peter. Uh, the name Peter means rock or stone. It's the Greek word for stone or rock. Now, the Aramaic word is Cephas. So sometimes you'll see that in the Gospels as well, Cephas. But it also means rock or stone. So Jesus renames him rock or stone. And that's obviously a play on words here. Jesus is saying, in essence, I tell you, you are rock And on this rock, I will build my church. So the most natural reading of this is to see that Peter is clearly the rock that Jesus is talking about. Uh, Jesus will build his church on him. And I think that's, I think that's the clear reading. I think that's the right reading. Another point worth noting is all of the you's, Y-O-U, plural, you, in verse 19, I will give you and whatever you bind and whatever you loose, all those you's are singular, not plural. So Jesus is clearly talking to Peter. So I think Peter is clearly the rock that he's talking about in one sense here. But I want to clarify, not in the way that the Roman Catholics teach this. Because they look at this and use this as justification to make Peter the first pope. He is the rock. And so I would say this is not Peter the pope of the church. This is Peter the representative of the church. That's the distinction, which I'll flesh out for you. But this is not Peter the Pope of the church, but Peter the representative of the church. And I get this most clearly, you can look at a number of places, but I get this most clearly from Jesus' other teaching on the church over in Matthew chapter 18. Scripture has to interpret Scripture, that's the rule, and this is a very important connection to make. Jesus is teaching, in Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching on church discipline. How we go after sinning sheep, lost sheep. And he says in Matthew 18, verse 18, speaking to the whole church, truly I say to you, whatever you, and the you here is in the plural, whatever you all bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you all loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Does that language sound familiar? Because it's the same word, same phrasing that... Jesus uses here in Matthew chapter 16, only over in chapter 18, when he's talking to the whole church, all the yous are plural. So the authority Jesus gives to Peter in Matthew 16, this binding and loosening authority, is given to the whole church in Matthew 18. So that's one reason, the clearest reason, I think, why we know that the rock Jesus builds his church upon is not Peter the Pope of the church, but is in fact Peter the representative of the church. So that's just a lot of theologizing. If, you, if you're like, okay, just... So what's the takeaway, Jace? What are you saying? What, what are you saying here? Well, let me sum it up. Ultimately, you could say the rock of the church is the people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ. What is the rock of the church? Ultimately, it's the people of God proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And that's not to take away the uniqueness of Peter. Uh, A lot of Protestants have have tried to pull back from this passage because of what Roman Catholics have made of this passage. And so uh, in doing that, they've tried to make up all these different things. You know, no, we can just go as far as Scripture goes. Peter played a unique role in preaching of or laying that early foundation. If you read Acts, uh, Jesus says what? You will be my witnesses where? To Jerusalem, Samaria, Judea, and into the world. And when you go through Acts, Peter is the first to preach in Jerusalem the gospel. He is the first to preach to the Samaritans the gospel in Acts chapter 8. And he is the first to preach to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. So God uses him to uniquely establish the 
the uh, the foundation. But it's not just him. We should be encouraged. It's everyone who faithfully proclaims that same gospel. I agree with Martin Luther when he famously quipped, all who agree with the confession of Peter are Peter's themselves setting a sure foundation. And this is why our service here every Sunday is meant to lift up Jesus Christ. We give thanks because God has given us his son. We pray and give in Christ's name and for the spread of Christ's fame. We read his word as authoritative in our lives. And we sing songs as we already have this morning. Praise the king who bore my sin, took my place when I stood condemned. And all that we do every Sunday, we are looking to lift up, to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that is the rock Jesus builds his church upon. Glorious truth number three. The invincibility of the church. The invincibility of the church. Or if you prefer, you could say the security of the church. It's security. Verse 18, on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. More literally, Jesus says here, the gates of Hades will not overcome it. Meaning the gates of death. He's saying death cannot, death cannot overcome the church. Listen, death cannot overcome the church because death cannot overcome Christ. Jesus predicts this down in verse 21, that he will be killed, but then rise victoriously three days later. So death cannot prevail against Christ, and neither can it overcome his church. I love how J.C. Ryle says this in his commentary. He writes, nothing can altogether overthrow and destroy the church. Its members may be persecuted, oppressed, imprisoned, beaten, beheaded, burned. But the true church is never altogether extinguished. It rises again from its afflictions. It lives on through fire and water. When crushed in one land, it springs up in another. The pharaohs, the herods, the neros have labored in vain to put down this church. They slay their thousands and then pass away and go to their own place. The true church outlives them all and sees them buried each in his turn. I love this. It is an anvil that has broken many a hammer in this world and will break many a hammer still. It is a bush which often is burning and yet is not consumed. Friends, death cannot stop Christ and it cannot stop his church. And this is a needed encouragement in our day when we often see churches compromising. Due to the, imitation, the intimidation of a hateful world, the threats of people leaving and the threats of persecution. But this passage imparts a mighty courage to our souls that we are a part of something that cannot be overcome. And it doesn't mean this church can't be in some way locally, but God's church will never be ultimately. You might one day, we could say to this world, shut these doors, but you cannot shut the door on the Lord's people. You might take away our tax-exempt status, but guess what? God's people are going to keep on giving because they give to the Lord. You might even take away our very lives, but hate to tell you this world, you only usher us into the presence of our Lord and Savior. Jesus' church cannot be overcome. And we need the courage of that to have a bold witness in our day. This leads us to glorious truth number four then. Glorious truth number four, the authority of the church. The authority of the church. Look with me at verse 19. Jesus says, I will give you the keys 
of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let me just think about that phrase there for a minute. I will give you the keys of the kingdom. Think about what it means to give your keys the keys of the car. The key to the house. And he has given his church the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Again, this is to Peter as representative of the church. We know from Matthew 18, like we saw, that the same authority is given to the whole church to bind and to loose. So what does this mean? Well, let me try to explain it through illustration first. In October, I'm going to be traveling to Ethiopia to teach at our denomination's pastor's college there. And as I'm getting everything ready, I've had you know, the State Department and a travel, travel uh, agency have already sent me a couple of times uh, the information for how to contact and find the embassy in Ethiopia, the U.S. embassy there. The address, and they say, take this with you. Because if you have any problems, that's where you go. And that's because that building, the ambassador there, all the State Department officials working there, they bear the authority of the U.S. government. They can speak authoritatively for our government, on behalf of our government. And in a similar way, Jesus has established local churches as his embassies on earth. We are his embassy on earth. We declare some of heaven's judgments here and now. Jonathan Lehman very helpfully explains this when he writes, By giving the keys of the kingdom first to Peter and the apostles and then to gather churches, Jesus gave churches a similar authority to the U.S. embassy, the authority to make provisional judgments concerning two things he's going to say. One, what is a right confession of the gospel that we see taught here in Matthew 16? And then second, who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Taught over in Matthew 18. This is what Jesus meant when he said churches possess the authority to bind and loose on earth what's bound and loosed in heaven. He didn't mean that that they could make people Christians or make the gospel what it is. No more than an embassy can make an American or make American laws. Rather, Jesus meant that churches could make official pronouncements or judgments concerning the what and the who of the gospel on behalf of heaven. What is a right confession? What is a correct one? What is a true one? And who is a true confessor? So what Lehman is saying here is that when when we tell people, when we go and tell people, Jesus is Lord, and all have fallen short of the glory of God, but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you may be saved. When we do that, we are echoing heaven's judgments. And like an embassy, Jesus has entrusted authority to us as the church to judge people's confessions. It's like checking their passports. We can validate whether or not they are going to heaven or hell, if they are in the kingdom or out of the kingdom. And this is the use of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. We loose and we bind on earth what has been loosed or bound in heaven, all in accordance with Scripture. 
So think about what this means for evangelism, for instance. Think about the implication of this for evangelism. The world hears us share the gospel. And what do they so often say to us? Who are you to say Jesus is the only way to heaven? Who are you to say if someone doesn't believe in Jesus like you do, then they're going to hell? Who are you to say what you believe about God is any more real or authoritative than what I believe about God? Who are you to say these things? What's our answer? It's the king who said it. It's the king who said it. We're only speaking on his behalf, on his authority. All we're doing is making use of the keys of his kingdom. The king is speaking. And as long as we agree with what he has said and adhere to what he has said, then we are speaking with kingdom authority. Or think about church membership and the implications for that. Think about that. On what authority do we have, on what authority can we say to some, you are welcome in to the church of Jesus Christ, but not you yet. No offense against this side of the room. We can switch it. Think about what, on what authority can we say, you're allowed to enter into the church, but not you yet. We judge your profession not true. Not not sincere yet. By what authority can we do that? Well, it's not authority that comes from in and of ourselves, but it is authority that belongs to the king of the kingdom. And he has entrusted the keys of his kingdom to the church. This is a part of the mission of the church. This is a part of why local churches exist and why we're not all just doing ministry by ourselves or or out there and about, we are supposed to be connected to the embassy of heaven, where examinations and judgments are made on people's confessions of faith. And this is why you can never divorce evangelism from church membership or parachurch ministries from church ministry. Because Matthew 16 and Matthew 18 and Matthew 28 are all intricately linked. This is the mission of making disciples. And this brings us to fifth Glorious truth, and we'll close with this. This is our last one. The fifth one is the message of the church. The message of the church. Verse 20, Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Now, if you're objectively reading this, you're thinking, well, that's kind of strange. Like, Peter just confessed the truth, and Jesus got all excited about it. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona. I'm going to build my church on this rock. Gates of hell cannot prevail against it. Don't tell anybody. You had to imagine the disciples were like, yes, yes. Wait, what? Don't tell anybody? We just gave this great commission, and, and now you're silencing us? Why? Why would Jesus... Praise Peter's profession, but then turn around and immediately prohibit its proclamation. The cause for this was the widespread misunderstanding of the Messiah. Most Jewish people were not looking for a Messiah like Jesus. Uh, Some thought of the Messiah in political terms. Others thought of the Messiah in military terms. They all thought that, that the kingdom would be immediate on earth now. 
But what almost no one thought of was a Messiah in substitutionary terms. They were not looking for a Messiah that would save them by dying for them. They didn't envision a Messiah that would be rejected by their religious leaders, who would be crucified and cursed on their behalf. They were not thinking of a Messiah that would be truly divine and truly human, and then who would offer himself up as the sin sacrifice, the lamb, for his people. They didn't envision a resurrection and ascension. They weren't thinking about all these things. This is why exactly after this, in verse 21, we read, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And what's the great confessor Peter do immediately after that? He says, by no means. He He can't comprehend it. He doesn't even understand the true nature of the Messiah yet. We'll study Jesus' substitutionary suffering more next week and, and the call to follow him in it. But the reason for this provisional gag order in verse 20 is this. The public proclamation had to be postponed until after Jesus' death and resurrection. Lest there be a misunderstanding about the true character of the Messiahship. There were certain things that had to happen first so that they could point back and say, what you have seen... Let us explain it to you. So what Jesus was doing here was he was very wisely protecting the proclamation of his identity. And I think there's application for us to consider here for ourselves. I wonder if we are just as careful to protect the proclamation of the true identity of Christ. Or do we sometimes leave the impression that our mission is political? Or do we sometimes leave the impression that it's behavioral? You know, what the world really needs, we wouldn't say this, but we would leave the impression by our excitement, our passion, That impression, you know, it really seems like what you think the world really needs are some more Christian politicians to make everything right again. Or what we really need are the renewal of Christian morals. Uh, I want you to understand, if tomorrow this nation swore off all its commitments to the LGBTQ agenda and it's off its commitment to abortion and to easy divorces and to swollen government programs but it did not turn to Jesus as Lord and Savior then it would be no less than, lost than it is today. It would be no less lost than it is today. Do we leave the impression that our primary concerns are temporal concerns? that it's political, that it's about our families being healthy and safe. With our kids, are we clear that Christianity is not about them being good little boys and girls, but that they have a sin problem, just like mom and dad, and Jesus is our only hope of salvation? Are we clear in the way that we declare Jesus? That he builds his church only through salvation. 
Only through transformation, only through regeneration, only those who can testify, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Once was blind, but now I see amazing grace. And this only comes about through the proclamation of a substitutionary Savior, a suffering Messiah who died for our sins to make us alive to God. Friends, may the world see that the message we are most passionate about is not political, it is not cultural, it is not familial, it is not behavioral, but it is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So may God help us proclaim Jesus Christ and Him crucified. All right, let's pray. Father in heaven, that is the proclamation of your church, that Jesus Christ is the Savior through substitutionary life and death. And He is the Son of the living God, Lord of our lives. Lord, this is the great truth over our life, and it orders all of our life. And so, God, I pray that through your word today, we have been recalibrated, that, Lord, some of us needed to be tuned up to this passage and convictions in line with it. So I pray that you're doing that today in the renewing of the mind, God. May it be done under no condemnation, but under the grace that comes through Jesus Christ. And, Lord, for those who are here today, And maybe they've heard Jesus Christ preached a thousand, thousand times. But today was really the first time. God, I pray that they would cast all their faith on you, Jesus, and they would hear something of you, Christ, saying over them, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven. That's what it's all about. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.